Dr. Robert Duroff, The Master Game was probably the most important book written in 1968, at least from my point of view. And uh, I find it to be a blueprint for what is known as consciousness growth or consciousness change. Yet reviews of it were scant at the time it was published. Um, they seemed to either, uh, the ones that were written, seemed to either not understand it at all or to treat it flippantly as, well, now we've got another game, the master game, isn't that cute kind of comment uh, of the reviews I could find. I'd like to look at the book, what you're saying in it. What are the ga games man is playing and what is the master game? Well, um... You can divide the games people play pretty much into low games and high games. And generally speaking, the uh, most popular of the low games is what I call hog in the trough in the master game, which is simply a mania for accumulating possessions and accumulating money. The second of the low games, of course, is the fame game, which uh, also extremely popular, which consists in assuring that a lot of people know what your name is and what you look like and more or less what you do. These are uh, to some extent, well, entirely ego games. They are entirely designed to inflate the ego. Then we come to the high games which consists in the uh, scientific game, the art game, the religion game. And finally, above them all, is the master game. The high games should, if they're played purely, not be ego games. The artist should not really be concerned with uh, bolstering his ego, but with expression of certain inner feelings of his through the medium of art. The scientist should not be concerned with bolstering his ego. He's concerned with finding out the truth about phenomena. And of course the religious uh, devotee should certainly not be concerned with bolstering his ego. Unfortunately the ego intrudes into all these games and intrudes very, very strongly. In fact, uh, artists very often play the art game purely from ego point of view. Their only thought is, will this art of mine, so-called, impress the public? So they're prepared to do practically anything to impress the public, whether it's art or not. And the scientists, of course, have fallen for this trap. Very often they are much more concerned with whether they're going to get the Nobel Award than whether they've actually discovered something which might be significant. And, of course, all the religions trip up over the ego thing. My religion is better than your religion. Wars have been fought over this, and heaven knows what disasters have resulted from this ego attitude towards religion. The master game is above all these, and you really cannot play the master game as an ego game. If you do, then you're absolutely certain to uh, go wrong in the game and fail. You mentioned 
five states of consciousness that are intrinsic to this uh, entering the, uh, the stream of the master game. You mentioned dreamless sleep and, and sleep with dreams and then waking sleep. I think the concept of waking sleep is probably where we should uh, begin, that your, your understanding of the state of consciousness we are in, uh, most people are in, let's say. This is a very difficult concept. It's difficult because if you say to somebody, you are asleep, that person will say, no, I'm not, I'm awake. And nature plays a very peculiar trick at that point because when that person says, I'm awake, he or she wakes up for a moment. They become objectively, objectively aware of their existence which is what we call the beginning of the awakened state. And then they immediately go to sleep again. Now the state of waking sleep is the state in which man ordinarily spends that part of his life which he doesn't spend sleeping in bed. It has two very important characteristics. The first characteristic is the state of daydreams person in this state of waking sleep dreams all the time, or most of the time, let's say. These daydreams go through the head, dealing with either events which have happened in the past, or events which this person thinks might happen in the future. In other words, this person in the state of waking sleep is not present in the now, but is lost in a dream. The second characteristic of the state is identification. Identification is a very difficult term to describe. It means that you do not have any existence separate from what you're thinking, feeling, experiencing at that moment. Identification can be deeper or shallower. If you want to see people in a state of really deep identification, you go to something like a, a baseball game. People are so identified that they don't exist at all, they're totally immersed in what's happening out there. Or a thrilling performance in the theatre or the movies, they don't have any existence at all. Totally identified. Now these two conditions keep man in sleep, so that if he wishes to awaken, he must first of all recognize that this state of dreams, daydreams, and this state of identification is not necessary not pleasant, not desirable, and can be struggled with. And this is where the master game actually begins, with a struggle against these states. You call the uh, approach creative psychology, and you call it a higher synthesis, a new level of order in the psyche. Can you tell us a bit about uh, what creative psychology encompasses? Yes, in this system of teaching we believe that man is a being who fails to develop to the fullest extent. If you compare man, say, to uh, an insect like a butterfly, a butterfly doesn't emerge from the egg like a little teensy butterfly. It emerges as a worm-like creature, a caterpillar, which eats and eats and grows and grows, and then it changes into a chrysalis, and from the chrysalis it emerges as a butterfly, the fully developed form. 
Now we regard man as being something like a butterfly which failed to get past the chrysalis stage. Nature takes man up to a certain point. She ensures that he develops to the point where he becomes sexually mature and can reproduce his kind. But nature does not guarantee that he develops any further. Indeed, it seems as if nature has placed certain specific obstacles in his way so that he doesn't even know that he has these possibilities. Now, creative psychology is the psychology of man's development beyond, let us say, the chrysalis stage. The realization of certain powers which, are, which exist in man, but which he doesn't ordinarily use. Dr. Durab, let me pose a hypothesis for you. Many of the um, spiritual teachings of the world talk about transcending the ego. And, for instance, in Zen they talk about a state of emptiness with the Tao. In your state of sleep that you describe, of identification of, say, perhaps at the opera or at a sports event where people move out of their identification and become identified with the event, what would you say would be the relationship between that state of literally moving beyond the ego and the state of awake or awareness that you're talking about? Well, in the case of identification, the individual has really uh, no existence at all. He is really like a puppet on the end of a string being pulled around by what's happening out there. And if his side uh, is winning, he'll shout, uh, blah, 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 good, good, good. And if it's losing, he'll say, oh, and so on. And he's just exactly like a puppet. He's pulled this way, pulled that way by events happening outside. And in the case of the individual who's transcended the ego and is absolutely uh, uh, going with the flow, there isn't any question of being pulled about. That person knows where his body is and what's going on around him and is fully conscious of his inner world and his outer world and doesn't separate the two. The inner and the outer world harmonize together. Now this is what is meant really by transcending the ego in these, in these teachings you're talking about. It's an entirely different thing. It tastes entirely different. You can only go by taste in this, uh, in this area. In your lifetime, Dr. Durop, have you met anyone who has transcended the ego? Well, you know, that's very hard to say, because how can you tell? I may have. Is there anyone of particular significance that perhaps sticks in your mind as someone that had, uh, had an effect on you? Well, it's probable that the people whom I uh, studied with, namely chiefly Uspensky and Gurdjieff, had both transcended the ego to some extent, but they fluctuated like all of us do. There were times when they were down and there were times when they, they were up. I can't think offhand of anybody I could say who was permanently up. We all fluctuate. Even uh, evidence from the Gospels indicate even that as high a being as Jesus fluctuated. 
After all, he did irrational things like cursing a fig tree. And <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering, there, there's some people that uh, say Gurdjieff was a man of massive ego, uh, and yet you're suggesting that perhaps he transcended the ego as well. I'm wondering if you might comment on that. I think it's perfectly possible to be both. I think in certain moods, Gurdjieff was a man of massive ego. And in other moods, he was uh, way uh, above the ordinary level. He was a man of enormous power. Perhaps he got stuck on a power trip. It's difficult to tell. Unless you actually knew Gurdjieff, you can't imagine how different he was from most people. Could you help us know him a bit, your experiences with him? What, what was he like for you? Maybe some anecdotes or, or visions, stories? Oh, he was him. I can't describe him. He was quite unlike the man from Mars, if you like. He came from a different <laughs> planet. I mean, he could sit there uh, squeezing on his little accordion thing, which he played, uh, you know, play the strange music and look at you in a certain way, and you have this feeling that this man has been around for a fantastic time. Maybe he saw the pyramids being put up. Not in that body, of course. It was just that feeling of a man who saw over enormous perspectives. He didn't see you like ordinary people did. He didn't look at you like ordinary people did. He saw right through you. And this could be rather disturbing. Any particular uh, instances in which you experienced him uh, with other people or doing this with you, for example? Or... Oh, I could cite various instances, but you know, Gurdjieff is dead, and the real essence of our uh, problem right now is to disentangle ourselves from Gurdjieff and Uspensky and other gurus and this whole tendency to develop a personality cult and come back to the question of what really are the basic teachings. I didn't know Gurdjieff at all well. I met him in New York and I was with him for quite a short while, but I knew Uspensky very well. And Uspensky always said, this, is a, this teaching is a bunch of fragments and we have to try and bring all the fragments together. A lot of it is missing. And I have the impression now that the bringing of the fragments together is impossible for the ordinary mind. In other words, you have to tap a certain higher mind in order to integrate the whole thing so that the entire system of teaching becomes integrated. The ordinary mind is not capable of handling it. So we have to learn how to awaken higher mind. And higher mind exists in us. But it's like a machine which we can't hook up to. Our level of consciousness is simply not sufficiently high for us to hook up to this very, very powerful machine. Now you can hook up to this machine sometimes accidentally and sometimes through the use of drugs, LSD especially. But the evidence suggests that when you hook up in this way, you can't bring anything back. In other words, you get so much information poured into your consciousness, such as it is, that it simply overloads your uh, machinery and you blow a fuse at that point and you simply pass out, you become unconscious. It often happens that people who've had some powerful LSD experience say after it, if only I could remember, but they can't remember. So much material came to them during that 
period that they simply can't possibly hold on to any of it. It's, it's all gone. It's lost. You've mentioned that there seems to have been some kind of an error in human evolution that prevents us from getting into the uh, uh, fourth or fifth state of uh, consciousness. What do you know about that error? The error is uh, in the formation of the brain and in the relationships between the three brains of man. Uh, it's been described at great length by Arthur Kirstler in his book, The uh, Ghost in the Machine. The three brains can be represented more or less as the brain of an alligator, the brain of a horse, and the brain of a man. The alligator brain is instinctive and it takes care of instinctive functions. The horse brain is predominantly emotional. The man brain is a tremendously complex machine which we don't know how to use. Between the mismanaged man brain and the highly emotional, highly undisciplined horse brain, there is a fundamental disharmony. And the man brain picks up certain information and passes it on to the horse brain. And the horse brain gets all worked up and starts to shy and rear and rush around and create all sorts of uh, fantasies which it feeds back to the man brain, which adds more fantasies to it. So we get these disastrous attacks of generalized uh, psychosis, really. I mean, I was recently rereading a a history of uh, World War One, and thinking now that whole thing was a result of disharmony between those two brains. The whole thing was simply a paranoid delusion. Millions of people killed for what? For nothing. So the fundamental error is there, the disharmony between those two brains. Is it that man's uh, role, the uh, current stage in evolution, is simply that man getting in charge of his own mind uh, and that part of his uh, physiology, that part of the brain that's uh, out of order? Or could that, in fact, be exactly what evolution is about at this point? How did this thing crop up to begin with that it cropped up wrong? Well, man is a very strange being, you know. He's a, a carnivore without the carnivore's excuse. He's uh, gone away entirely different from the other primates. He spent uh, thousands and thousands of years simply um, fighting for his sheer existence. And this developed in him a tendency to behave in a rather savage way. He's a very savage animal. He's the killer of killers. And this red savage still lurks down there in the old part of the brain, embedded there by centuries and centuries of bashing about, killing prey, killing his fellow men. And now he's reached a stage of his development where he simply cannot afford to do this anymore. With A-bombs, H-bombs, etc., he cannot afford to do this anymore. He's faced with this uh, difficult choice. He must either learn to behave differently or he's going to wipe himself off the face of the earth and most of the uh, biosphere with him. So he's uh, got to evolve fast. 
your mention of the uh, personality cults that that say have built up around someone like Gurdjieff, and certainly we're experiencing a great deal of that uh, in this time with many of gurus that have come from the East, gurus that are appearing in our midst. Uh, I'm wondering how you see that and how you see that in relationship to the search for the inner guru, which your comments are implying. Well, it's generally true that people would do almost anything rather than think for themselves. They want it dished out. This is the truth. Why is it the truth? Because I tell you it's the truth. So they like authority. They like to be told what is the truth. They want to believe. And it's obvious that gurus can take advantage of this longing to believe and that they do they they, they uh, simply say now believe me believe me this is so this is the way to do it all right so the followers tag along and they they just love it Gurdjieff used to say that these two qualities of the human psyche credulity and suggestibility are the primal curse so to speak man will swallow any old tale or as he used to put it cream from the navel of the estimable Scheherazade how does one know that he knows then uh, that he is his insight his inner voice uh, as Michael uh, puts it <clears throat> is correct when there are others who say that they know and yet it's different than what one feels he knows this whole metaphysical problem of knowing that you know and others say they know and it's different. Oh, you could tell you have certain definite uh, reactions, like the taste of salt, for instance. You know what salt tastes like. I could talk for a year and I couldn't describe to you how salt tastes. But if you tasted salt, you know. Okay. There are... Certain, there is a function in the human psyche which we call objective conscience, which will tell you the difference between the truth and the lies. If objective conscience is functioning in you, or if you can bring it to the point where it does function, you will know. This is the Holy Spirit of the Christian Gospels, the spirit of truth. And when it works in somebody, that somebody doesn't have to go off to some guru and say, is this true or isn't it? That person knows. How does one activate this objective conscience? Well, in the beginning, you know, we have to determine who is talking in us. We have various characters who take over the stage and they uh, play their roles. And they are all characterized by certain archetypes in the tarot cards. For instance, there's the fool and there's the devil. Now, these are two archetypes which characterize man in deep sleep. The fool is always lost in dreams. He wanders along with a sack on his back, which contains all the sacred symbols, but he doesn't know what they mean. He doesn't even know what's in the sack. He's dreaming. He doesn't even know his pants are falling down. This is the fool. The devil is the liar in man, the father of lies. He always lies. Now, as long as you are dominated by the fool and devil, 
you cannot possibly have objective conscience. In order to have objective conscience, you have to begin to come under the sign of the hanged man. The hanged man has sacrificed his personal ego and his, particularly his habit of lying. He's been literally turned upside down. This is a symbol of truth. The juggler is also a symbol of truth of a different kind. The juggler uses skillful means. And the Hierophant and the High Priestess are also symbols of truth, symbols of objective knowledge. And if you come under these symbols, or if you can bring out these archetypes in yourself and develop them as opposed to the others, then you'll develop objective conscience. And will that always correspond to what someone else is doing in the same uh, mode? Will there ever be contradictions or differences? Well, it's said that the human population can be divided up into a great big mass of people who are on the outside, the exoteric group, a group of people who are trying to get to the inner circle, the mesoteric group, and a group that are in the inner circle, the esoteric group. Now the inner circle of humanity, by definition, operates through objective conscience. In other words, they have the capacity to know objectively. They don't deceive themselves and they don't deceive one another and they can communicate. This is the basis of the idea of the communion of saints in the, in the Christian teaching. They understand each other and they won't argue. So if an argument develops, you can be quite sure that those particular gurus are not really in the inner circle. So how do you account for the differences between these um, teachers which seem to be uh, uh, telling the truth? You would have to say that each of them somehow is lost in his ego in some degree? Oh, some of them are lost in their egos and some of them uh, present the truth from different angles, from different points of view. But if they really are objective men or women, they will not have any arguments. They say, yes, well, I see it from this angle and you see it from that angle, but it doesn't make any difference. How about a man like uh, J. Krishnamurti? Are you familiar with his work? Have you met him? Yes, he's one of the very few individuals who always strikes the uh, clear note. I've never known Krishnamurti talk nonsense. That's saying a lot. So... Have you ever known uh, Gurdjieff to talk nonsense? Well, yes, because Gurdjieff could talk in all sorts of different ways and sometimes talk absolute nonsense, but this was uh, not necessarily because he didn't know it was nonsense. He could play all kinds of roles. That, uh, the roles and the person, the personas, goes back to a, uh, <clears throat> the uh, particular core of uh, getting into the fourth room, the fourth state of consciousness as I uh, experience it. Maybe we could talk about uh, how you go about getting into that fourth room, uh, what approaches you use or methods. That, Perhaps you could uh, talk about the previous three too and what were the fourth and fifth states of consciousness. Well, we did that, the sleeping, uh, mm -hmm. then dream sleep, and then uh, waking sleep, which is what we're, uh, most people are in now. The fourth state is the self-remembering uh, or transcending and how to get into that uh, state. I'm thinking of the 
awareness or the attention is one thing you've outlined. The curious thing about the fourth state is that the methods to be used to get into that state are really not very diff well, not complicated at all. There are four principles of work on being which will enable you to get into the fourth room and they can be expressed quite simply. The first principle is stop thoughts, be here now. The second principle, learn to convert your poisons into honey. This has to do with the transmutation of negative emotions. The third principle, substitute intentional doing for accidental happening. And the fourth principle, do nothing unnecessary or avoid unnecessary karma. Now anybody who can apply those principles really consistently will sooner or later enter the fourth room. How is that distinguished from the fifth and last room then? The they aren't there? very clearly distinguished. They really blend into each other. As you expand your consciousness, you become more and more aware of your unity with the totality. You become aware of the cosmic, uh, the cosmic whole, if you like, the, the total cosmic drama. We are integrally part of the cosmic drama. We cannot separate ourselves from it. Insofar as we separate ourselves from it, we are asleep. If we awaken, then we become aware of the totality. So really the fourth room simply expands into the fifth room. I'd like to ask you, Dr. DeRoff, about that third step you mentioned, substituting intentional doing for accidental happenings. Could you further explain that a little more? Yes, the uh, principle is simply this, that in the state of sleep, we do not do, we cannot do, it does us. We react mechanically to stimulus. We don't move intentionally. Intentional activity is very beautiful activity. For instance, if you uh, watch a really good master of the Japanese tea ceremony, every movement is intentional. And this intentionality will produce a definite um, inner awareness. For instance, I can put out my arm and know that I'm doing so. Or it can put out the arm. That is to say, it, it acts just like a puppet pulled out by a string. An important part of the Gajefian teaching deals with intentional movement. In fact, there is a long series of uh, exercises developed by Gurdjieff and Madame de Salzmann, which are entirely involve intentional moving, intentional movement. Through intentional movement, you can actually get the sensation of self-remembering. Intrinsic to the uh, question of who man is beyond his games, you point out the uh, essence the persona and the, um, the ego. Could you elaborate on what the essence is and 
the other two aspects as the human condition presents itself to you at this point? Yes, you can use this word essence as being more or less that which man is born with. Essence determines type. Type determines fate. People's essence is always very closely related to their physical type. And the three main physical types, or the three parameters of physical type, which Sheldon has specified, uh, endomorphy, mesomorphy, and ectomorphy, can give, to some extent, a clue to the essence. Can you maybe illustrate with uh, what your essence is or what uh, your combination is on that scale of one to seven uh, that you point out in the book? Well, you've got to understand that the body type or somatotype is one thing and the temperament type is another thing. Sheldon wrote two books, one of which dealt with varieties of temperament and one dealt with varieties of physique. There is a correlation, but it isn't always very close. For instance, if you take a person who is high in ectomorphy, which I happen to be, he is also likely to be high in cerebrotonia. Predominantly cerebral, lives in his nervous system, thinks. A thinker rather than one who acts Now, different people have different predominant centers. You can say that there are people who live mainly through their moving center. They are people who love physical activity. They can be very good athletes, adventurers, explorers. They are nearly always high mesomorphs. He looks something like professional uh, footballers. And you can say there are people who live almost predominantly in their emotional centers. They may have a lot of endomorphy. These emotional people are very often uh, rather oval in outline. And there are people who live predominantly in their intellectual centers. The correlation between the physical type and the center which predominates, however, is not by any means 100%. And because of this lack of correlation, Sheldon's principles of typing people have been criticized pretty severely by a lot of psychologists. To the extent it is so, how does it relate to one's essence and exactly uh, what is that essence again in relationship to that? Essence is what you're born with. Essence is your inborn characteristics. You can have all sorts of qualities in essence, such as, for instance, you can have a good ear for music. You can have a natural talent for drawing. What we call talent is an essence quality. 
You don't develop talents. You're born with talent. How does that distinguish between what has been known as the spirit or the soul, then? Uh, There's a relationship of essence and God, for example. Well, actually, the, the soul is an entirely different idea. The soul is thought of in this system of teaching as a higher being body which is developed through certain kinds of intentional effort. The soul cannot be developed unless the essence is, is sound. There is possibility of the growth of essence. That is to say, essence is not absolutely fixed. There can be growth in essence. Now, you have to understand that the essence and the personality are different in this way, that essence is what you're born with, but personality is what you acquire through contact with the culture in which you're born. So the kind of personalities which we see around now in modern America are different from the kind of personalities you'd be likely to encounter in ancient Rome, for instance. So personality reflects the culture in which you're born, but essence is something intrinsic. Now personality tends to develop a, what you might call, malignant growth, which we call the false ego. The false ego is not necessary. The false ego generally centers around some kind of negative emotion or what we call negative emotion, pride, envy, and so forth. It very often happens, especially in city people, that the false ego takes over everything. They become actually nothing but false ego. And if you've been trained in the right way, you can detect this. The falseness is so obvious that it, it jars on you like a bad note in music. One of the most difficult tasks for people who are in this position is to try to get away from this false ego. Try to weaken it. Try not to live in it all the time. Because if you live in the false ego, you are virtually dead. You're a walking corpse, a zombie. Well, when one is in the fourth state or the transcendent self-remembering state of consciousness, he would be dealing directly from his essence, I take it. Yes, in the uh, fourth state, essence is certainly predominant, but because people have to deal with their fellow men, they need persona. Persona is a mask, and it uh, is necessary. You can't always be showing everything. For instance, if you want an example, you can say that uh, very often among simple peasant people, they are very simple. They are almost entirely essence. They have practically no persona at all. If you introduce them into a big city, for instance, where persona is dominant, they'll feel absolutely lost. They can't cope. They don't have any persona to speak of. See? The rural atmosphere, the country life, tends to cause essence to dominate over persona. The city life tends to cause persona to dominate over essence and false ego to dominate persona. Hence the need to avoid city life. 
I'm wondering, you mentioned again the negative emotions and their effect on, on the ego. And earlier you had mentioned as one of the things that needs to be done is transmuting these negative emotions into positive forms. I'm wondering if you have any practical suggestions for how to do that. Certainly. The most uh, common cause of uh, persistence in negative emotions is justification. We justify them. We say, yes, I got angry or I got envious, but I had every good reason to do so. Now this attitude that negative emotions are justifiable causes them to be perpetuated. If you take the opposite attitude and say, no, they are not justifiable, they are not necessary, they use up energy and they uh, don't produce any desirable results, then little by little you can teach your emotional center through your intellectual center. The intellectual center can talk to the emotional center. Say, now listen, you don't have to behave this way. It's not necessary. It's not cool. It's not, not desirable. And after a time, and it's a very long time, I have to say, the emotional center may uh, actually get the, get the point and stop manifesting in this way. You must realize that it is in enormously difficult to retrain the emotional center because we can't talk to it direct. We can't manipulate it directly. We have to get at it indirectly through, through uh, talking to it through the intellectual center. You have to realize also that in our culture, such a cult of negative emotion exists in the form of all sorts of crime and violence, constantly uh, dished out by the media, that uh, this overcoming of negative manifestations is made very, very difficult. Children from the earliest ages are exposed to all this garbage which pours out and they get the idea that negative emotions are rather heroic. It's quite the thing to do. And to retrain them later on, it may be very difficult. Of course, to some extent, to people perhaps living in the ghetto and that kind of thing, it's, it's one of the ways that they identify with getting attention and, and calling attention to their plight, this kind of thing. Well, I know they do that, but it doesn't improve things very much. And you can go up blowing up the Bank of America and doing things of that kind, but it's probably not the best way to go about it. <laughs> I would think not. Is the persona then the ego that's talked about in other systems, that identifying with who I think I am? Uh... Yes, the persona is the seat of the ego. They're the same. Pretty much. You mentioned pretty much, you say, there's not any, you have no withholds regarding that. There's a... Well, really, you know, persona is based on essence. In the sense that if you lay out a certain foundation to a building, the building will always have to have a certain form, which is determined by the foundation. See? And the persona always has a certain form which is determined by the essence. And a roly-poly endomorph like uh, Falstaff, for instance, will have one kind of persona, and a skinny ectomorph like Hamlet will have another kind of persona. And Hamlet could no more play a convincing Falstaff than Falstaff could play a convincing Hamlet. So the persona is always sort of based on the, based on the essence. 
Persona doesn't disappear as, as a person develops, but it's transmuted. It takes second place. You said in the book that destroying any of the various personas that we have would be a disastrous thing. I've heard that said, perhaps not exactly by you. Is that, um, why is that? Just getting rid of one of them? Getting well, rid of we one don't have the power to do it in actual fact. They'll all be there sitting around. But you uh, change the pecking order, so to speak. Yeah.